Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, this is Rebecca Buchanan, host of New Books Network, New Books in Popular Culture. And today I'm here with Greg Beats and Richard Weimark, who are the authors of A Curious Mix of People, The Underground Scene of 90s Austin. Uh, Greg and Richard, thanks for being here with me today. Thanks for having us. Yes, thank you for having us. Could you start by talking about why you wanted to put this book together about 90s Austin sort of underground scene? Well, this was an idea that was started by Chepo Pena. And Chepo was in a lot of bands at the time and is a great graphic artist and just generally all-round creative person. And he approached me and said, how about we make a documentary film about that scene we were in in the 90s. And he was deep in it as a musician. I was on the radio, on college radio, playing a lot of these bands. And so we started interviewing a lot of people, and a lot of people got interviewed. And it got a bit overwhelming, especially when all the ephemera showed up and the posters and the VHS tapes. And it's a massive scene within an environment of lots of scenes going on in Austin at the time. There was also the blues scene and the hip-hop scene. There was a heavy metal scene. We were just sort of the DIY punky scene. And so we got a bit overwhelmed. And at the same time, in the background, Greg had been transcribing the interviews for us. And the stories were great. And I thought to myself, well, how about we turn the stories into a book? We're all of a certain age. We all like to sit and read books. And um, that's what happened. And then lockdown and COVID happened. And so a lot of people, including us, had much less to do. So we just interviewed people over Zoom and added those interviews to the book. And then because Greg is such a great music journalist and a great writer, I asked him if he would like to write little introductory paragraphs, maybe, to each chapter, like just little small sentences. And I realized (laughs) his writing is amazing. And it's not only about music, it's also about the history of the city as it relates to affordability and the housing crisis and politics. And it's a lot more than just bands playing music. And so what was his introductions to each chapter became a lot more of the story. And then after his story, we add these interviews, which are kind of like people sitting at a bar after a few pints, you know, chatting about when we were kids. Yeah, I I would pretty much uh, concur with everything uh, Richard uh, said. And it was something that I guess I was aware that Richard and Chepo were working on this project uh, from the very beginning. Uh, It was I I was actually one of the first people uh, who I guess they interviewed for it. And uh, so I was it it was something that was uh, near and dear to me. I'd been covering uh, music as a local music as a writer, uh, pretty much since, well, uh, it, for the, uh, for the local alternative news weekly, uh, the Austin Chronicle since about 1992. And then, uh, did some writing for the, uh, university of Texas student newspaper before then. Uh, I, I too was, uh, also working in college radio, uh, when, when it was, uh, the, the UT student radio station, uh, which is now KVRX, was back then known as uh, KTSB. Um, and then I was also uh, singing in a couple of bands during this time. Uh, so it, it was a, a scene I was uh, familiar with and also just uh, enthralled and en- enthused about. So the opportunity to come in and uh, write about it uh, was was kind of a good... Uh, for, for me, it was a, a custom fit. And so... Uh, just being able to to draw on uh, on on all those experiences together and kind of put it together, uh, like Richard said. I mean, I think our our idea was the, you know the the notion of uh, going to a bar and listening to all these uh, all these folks talking together. So we kind of with with the, with the oral history approach, I think we were looking at uh, 
uh, Lex McNeil's book, uh, Please Kill Me, uh, is, is one um, kind of way station in terms of how we put it together. Uh, so, you know, the, the idea was to kind of create a conversation among the people uh, who had participated in the in the underground music scene back then. And then the the introductions uh, that I wrote were really uh, kind of scene setters, I guess, to sort of uh, provide uh, a little bit of context, uh, musical context, uh, po- you know, political context in some cases, economic context in some cases. So uh, it was, it, you know, I think that was the idea is to try to give everybody a, a real good understanding of, of how this scene fit into uh, the greater uh, span of time in which it took place. So one of the things, um, because you hit on it, and I really loved how you did sort of set this larger scene. I think, especially now, if you're not from Austin, if you're not from the area, um, you think of this big music scene, you think of South by Southwest, right? Like it is this place, it's this place for alternative music. But in reading this, it wasn't at the time, right? Um, And you talk about like driving an hour away to go to a club. So can you kind of like, set that scene a little bit before we and then we can maybe talk about some of these clubs and that but like what what it was like in the early 90s and what was going on to sort of create and really make this underground scene for Austin well I think um you know one thing to understand about what what Austin was uh at that time versus kind of what it what it is now I mean it was it was really a a large town uh, at that time. It was not a. It was not a. Not really a city. Um, the population was uh, right around uh, maybe half a million. Um, so it was you know it was big enough. But uh, but but if you were coming from uh, another uh, large Texas city like Dallas or or Houston, uh, it seemed much more uh, manageable. And a lot of the inflow of younger people uh, to Austin at that time, it was primarily, uh, you know, people who were showing up in Austin to go to school, uh, to, the, to the extent that people were moving to Austin. Um, it, it, it had, to, it was, it was a lot of people from Texas at that time. It wasn't necessarily uh, folks moving from uh, other, other spots in the country. Uh one, one thing I like to, I'm, I'm a big fan of value. And I think, uh, you know, value is kind of like the intersection of uh, quality and, uh, you know, what you get for your money. And it, at that time in the late 80s, early 90s, uh, a little money went a long way in Austin. Um, you, you could you could live very inexpensively. Uh, you could you could eat very inexpensively. I mean, your choices might be limited. You wouldn't be going and, you know, dining on, uh, uh, you know, fancy sushi or anything like that. You'd be pretty much eating uh, like breakfast tacos for, uh, you know, 65 cents or something like that uh, from a place like uh, Tamale House. Uh, But, you know, you could, you could get by on rent really cheaply. You could uh, double up with or triple up or even quadruple up with roommates uh, work a job, uh, where you're doing something like, you know, making sandwiches and, uh, work part-time and still actually make the rent every month and still have whatever time, uh, you needed to, uh, do art, whether you're doing music or whether you're doing film or, or, uh, or visual art or what have you. So, uh, it, it was, it was just a lot easier to get by at the time in the city, you know, Austin has been a, prosperous, uh, you know, economically, uh, well off, relatively speaking to a lot of places in the United States, uh, city and region for such a long time that people forget that, uh, you know, in the mid eighties, uh, there were a lot of things that killed Texas's, uh, economy. I mean, you had, uh, the slump in oil and gas prices, uh, you had, uh, the SNL crisis, uh, which was really centered in Texas, and it certainly had a major uh, impact on Austin. There were there were a lot there was lots of uh, uh, lot, lots of office vacancies at, at one point. Uh, a lot of the uh, rent housing or rent apartments uh, here in Austin were actually under the auspices of the Resolution Trust Corporation. Um, and, and then you had this the, the space shuttle blow up, the Challenger, and that kind of killed. 
uh, you know, whatever was going on with, uh, you know, the, the space and the ancillary businesses that supported that. Uh, so it was, it was, it was a, a rough time to be living in Texas economically. But if you were in Austin, it, it was, it, you know, you, you still had the, the hills and you still had all this live music. Uh, you had um, relatively cheap food, relatively cheap drinks, relatively cheap rent. And it was a relatively isolated city. There was there like, what there wasn't, um, uh, necessarily a lot of touring shows that came through Austin. The, the, the smaller touring shows would, but the big touring shows would skip it for Dallas or Houston. And so the, the scene itself was very regional and you would have local bands that could fill a club just as, uh, just as well as uh, a, a touring act would. So um, it, it was just, it was just a much more insular uh, place at the time. So it was a good, it, it was a good place for, uh, you know, to develop uh, is, is a new band. So you, you just brought up something then that I hadn't thought about in forever. I had a, a friend here uh, who was well into the punk scene. He he and I arrived from Europe around the same time. He was Hungarian from Budapest, and he'd grown up in communist Hungary. And I remember us driving somewhere around Austin, and he just looked out the passenger window and went, look at all that greenery. There's so many trees and parks and greenery here. <clears throat> that is one thing that's slowly being eaten away at. It's slowly turning into concrete. But he he was a big fan of the fuck emos and would always go on about them all the time and and uh, turn me on to them. In fact, and he was, but he was uh, he would always be down at emos. But yeah, sorry, just the greenery you mentioned. I, I'd forgotten how green that used to be here. Yeah, I I grew up in um in the Twin Cities, right? And so in the nineties I was going, you know, early like so this reminded because there were many things I mean, there's many differences, but there are also similarities in the size of like Minneapolis St. Paul and that scene in the early nineties and all of that. So there was a lot I, I got that same feel and how you could go to different clubs and kind of find the same people, but also find different folks, right? There was this, that feel for this and, and in reading the interviews and thinking, I think we probably had a lot more bands, bigger bands coming through um, for certain reasons, uh, but uh, because we didn't have any other big cities like Dallas or, you know, around, but it, it still had that same kind of feel when I was reading this, there was a lot of nostalgia for me in remembering that. So I, I just will say, I appreciate that. <laughs> but that's also um, a great point, isn't it? That the, the, these scenes were happening in every city, it seems, around the United States and, and Europe. Um, the one thing that seems to stand out, and, and I may be wrong here, but seems to stand out in the Austin scene is the fact that women were front and centre and very much part of it. They, Like Cindy Widener from Power Snatch said, the, the women in the scene weren't allowed in by the men. They were there creating and, and were part of the swirling maelstrom. And they, they often say in interviews that when they left Austin, it felt very different. It felt very masculine and maybe some awful sound guy might mess up their sound if there was a woman in the band or you were considered to be the girlfriend before you got on stage or things like that. So I think while, yes, lots of scenes were happening around the, the, the country and, and, and were fantastic in and of their own right, in Austin, from what we've heard from the ladies in bands, it, that was one of the big differences. Well, they were... I, I think what you what, you know what you said. I mean, they're integral to the scene, but also like right at the center of things. Um, uh, you know, and, and uh, you know, and uh, certainly you know there there were people like C uh, Cindy from Power Snatch, and really all all of the women in Power Snatch, both uh, both in the band as well as uh, uh, the, the other bands that they uh, went on to do. Um, you know, were 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 pivotal. Uh, you know, Rebecca Cannon from Sincola, uh, Carrie Clark from 16 Deluxe, um, all, you know, th th these, these were people who were right at the, the front of, uh, Lisa Rickenberg from the Inhalants, uh, another, an, another one. 
uh, right at the center of things. And, and to some extent that was, um, you can actually trace that, I think back to the very beginning of, uh, you know, punk rock in Austin, you know, I think that, you know, the, the very, you know, the very first band, uh, that kind of presented itself as a, as a punk rock band playing out in Austin, uh, were the violators. And this would have been probably 1978. And, and that band, uh, had Kathy Valentine, of course, who later moved to LA and, and joined the Go-Go's and, uh, now, now in the rock and roll hall of fame. Um, but, but at one time she was, you know, 17, 18 years old, uh, you know, getting on stage and playing, playing punk rock. And at the time the you know, that was definitely going against the prevalent winds, which, you know, Austin was, was a music town there, but primarily known, uh, for, you know, what was called progressive country, I guess, uh, at the time. Um, so the, 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 the involvement of, of, of women, uh, in, in the scene, as well as, uh, you know, the LGBT, uh, you know, uh, influence, I think has always been there. Um, in the, in the eighties, it was, you know, uh, Randy Biscuit Turner and the big boys and Gary Floyd and, and the Dicks who were, uh, you know, the, the two biggest punk bands in town, both fronted by, uh, you know, openly gay men, uh, who grew up in East Texas, uh, and, and, you know, growing up that way in East Texas is, is, uh, you know, you, you have to develop a skin, uh, you know, in Austin, uh, I think even, you know, even at that point, I think wasn't the friendliest place necessarily to be, uh, to be openly gay was, was much friendlier than, um, you know, behind the pine curtain, as we say here in Texas, uh, that, that was just a, that, that was a rough place to be different in any way. And especially in, in those particular ways. So th- I think that kind of carried over into the, into the nineties. I mean, uh, you know, Biscuit was still very much involved in the scene at that time. He was doing a band called, uh, Swine King, uh, that, that were, uh, that, that were great. Um, you know, and, and, and a lot of the people from the eighties continued doing work, uh, into the nineties, Tim Kerr from the big boys was doing, uh, you know, kind of more blues based punk rock with, uh, with, with bands like Jack of fire. And he was producing a lot of the younger bands at Sweatbox studios, which was, uh, a re- you know, a, a relatively affordable, uh, recording studio smack dab in the middle of downtown Austin, where, uh, you know, a lot of these bands, uh, could, could record and having, you know, having that as a uh, as a piece in the infrastructure uh, w- w- was huge in, in documenting this whole scene. Yeah, and you know, you brought up something I wanted to ask you about anyway, but um, the women, right? Because what I one thing I really loved um, when you're talking about this is that um, you don't just. I have read a number of oral histories where it becomes either like the women become a chapter. <laughs> Right. It's like, oh, wait, here's the chapter on the women. And now let's go back to all the men talking and how this is structured is one in a way where if you don't sit and look at the names, it can read just like you're like you're saying it's a conversation. You don't know who's talking. But if you start to pay attention, you have weaved all the narratives in here. So, right, those the narratives of the women are just as much prevalent and just as much a part of it as the men. And I think that that's unique, right? A lot of times when we think about oral histories, especially punk oral histories, where it does become, um, the women did this little thing called Riot Girl. That was the one thing they did. And now we're done. Peace out. Or they were in one band. So let's tell you about the band. Um, So I want, (laughs) oh yeah. (laughs) You had Lilith Fair. Women had that one year. You had that one year. That's it. That was your Yeah. I think that's one. That's one of the the things when when we were talking to our editor at at UT Press, and I know that you know, uh, you know, they they wanted to, you know, they they were kind of like, well, are you sure you want to do the oral history approach? Um, Because you know there there are you know pluses and minuses to to using that approach. but, but from our perspective, I think making sure that it wasn't just our voice telling the story uh, was, was pivotal. I mean, it, it kind of had to be. And, and, um, and then, you know, at the same time, I mean, uh, you know, I think the editorial guidance we got from UT uh, encouraged us to really dig, 
you know, dig deep on, um, you know, making sure that, that we were getting, uh, is, as, as many, uh, you know, as many of the, the women in the scene, uh, in there in a material way as, as we could. And I think, uh, you know, is there was a lot I already knew about the scene just from having covered it and having participated in it, participated in it. But I think the big learning, you know, experience in the book in terms of my understanding of the scene and how that evolved as we, as we were putting it together really came from just doing all these interviews, you know, with, with the, with the women. Um, because, you know, the, there were things I hadn't thought of that, that I don't think I would have thought of without having the, uh, you know, the, that input from, from the women. Like we, we talk about this club, uh, that opened, um, in 1991 called the cavity, which, uh, helped provide, uh, kind of a home base for a lot of these newer bands that, that otherwise couldn't get regular gigs at the, uh, at the clubs, you know, that, that were in existence because those bands, you know, they're already established bands and touring bands playing these, uh, playing these other clubs. And so, uh, it, you know, is somebody covering these bands. And again, as somebody who was in one of these bands, I was like, this is great. The cavity is, is this great place that we have, uh, to, to play now. But, you know, almost to a note, every time we talked to women about it, they were like, yes, but that, that place was kind of scary to go to if you were a woman. And it really wasn't, you know, there was a lot of stuff that wasn't particularly, uh, friendly about it. Uh, if, if you're a woman. So, that, that evolved our understanding. And I think, um, you know, as, as we got further along in the, you know, putting it together, uh, the import of the club chances, uh, became, uh, and, I, and I apologize, my cat's getting right in the way here, but, uh, <laughs> uh, chances became a much more, uh, you know, that, that, that chapter grew, uh, and, and, and I think we really wanted to drill down a little bit deeper, in terms of, of why, uh, you know, why chances was important. And it, and it was because this is a, uh, you know, was, was a, uh, a, le- a lesbian bar that, that became a pivotal, uh, live music venue, uh, during, during the nineties, not, and not just necessarily for, uh, punk rock. I mean, for any kind of eclectic music, uh, that, that otherwise wouldn't find, uh, a home, that was, you know, one of the great places uh, that, that was putting it on. And at the same time, it was a pivotal, a pivotal place, uh, you know, for, for the lesbian community and really a pivotal place. I think if you look at somebody when somebody writes a book about LGBT history uh, in Austin, um, chances will figure into that that piece as well. Because like, um, w- within that, uh, Greg did this amazing interview with Gretchen Phillips. I think anything with Gretchen Phillips is going to be excellent. Um, But she made this point that not only was Chances a lesbian bar that had music and um, accepted other people to come and play, it was where all the intelligent people went or the, the slightly artsy, kooky people went. And she said there were other bars that she would go to in town where you had to wear your starch button up shirt tucked into your nice jeans with your big Texas belt belt buckle. And, you know, it's not all, you know, love and peace within one community. Even within one community, there are dividing lines because, of course, there are. And so to go to chances was where the intelligent music or the slightly kooky, artsy stuff was happening. And so for her, it was a safe space within a community. Uh, and And I didn't realize that. I just assumed everyone would would love everyone within a community, but that's not the case. Absolutely. I mean, it, it, it was, uh, so, so Sandra Martinez, the owner of chances, I think was, you know, was taking a big chance by opening that club up to, you know, to, to, to straight folks to some degree, because she was, uh, you know, potentially alienate, you know, potentially alienating some of her core, uh, clientele, um, who wanted to keep it, um, you know, who, who, who basically wanted to keep it just for that community, which is, which is totally understandable given the, the, you know, climate of how things were, uh, in Texas at the time and still are to some degree. Um, but, but, but the fact that they opened it up, I mean, it just, it kind of became this whole, uh, new thing. And yeah, Gretchen talks about the fact that, you know, one of one of the things she always wanted to do with her music was was kind of bridge this divide between 
uh, you know, the, the LGBT folks and, and the straight folks. So there's a shared understanding. There's a shared alliance. Um, and, and, uh, and, I, and I think Chances really did that in a, you know, just a, just a beautiful way back then. Yeah, so you talk about, right, so you mentioned the cavity. You also looked at emos, radio. Like, So can you talk a little bit about maybe um, a couple of the other clubs that you um, found were really important to creating and making this scene? I'm so glad you asked because we often get asked about the grungier side of things at Blue Flamingo and Cavity. But there was also other venues out in what were the dead parts of town. Right. There's the Electric Lounge and Liberty Lunch. Electric Lounge, you had to make an effort to go to. They put on eclectic arts shows. They would have actual art on the wall. There would be an artist painting while the band was playing. And they would uh, start off the evening perhaps with spoken word or poetry. Or every Wednesday, they'd have uh, a nine-piece um, acoustic band called the Asylum Street Spankers. Um, and they were big in the hip-hop scene as well. So they really were mixing up a nice uh, eclecticism. But as you were asking earlier about the geography of the city, you really had to work hard to get out to this sort of dirt lot on the railroad tracks where there was nothing but a used car lot and this little venue. Uh, And now... If you visit Austin, it's where the flagship Whole Foods is. You you can't move for traffic and buildings. And South by Southwest had their headquarters in in the building that's there. And there's now a 42-story condominium tower. But at the time, yeah, I remember just sitting in my car in, in their parking lot, you know, taking a break from the bands. And, you know, a police officer comes and knocks on the window because it's a dodgy part of town and... I got frisked for the first time. But as a sidebar, we ended up talking about Shakespeare because the police officer was studying Shakespeare in his part-time job. Um, Anyway, but yeah, the Electric Lounge was amazing. And then Liberty Lunch was also sort of on a dirt lot. And they were the big warehouse that had bands that you would see on maybe 120 minutes on MTV. Uh, they they would have the big touring acts come through, but they started out by booking reggae. So again, you've got this mix of, of music coming through. It's not just men playing guitars. Um, it's it's a it's a wide range of music in the scene. Yeah, and and I think the other thing about Liberty Lunch is you're you're right. I mean, it's kind of amazing to go to that part of town now because. That's sort of the the well developed, uh, very uh, upscale part of of downtown Austin. Now there's a you know W Hotel there, uh, the where where they film Austin City Limits. The TV show is is inside of that W Hotel, and then kind of catty corner of that is the uh, you know there's a you know computer company. I think it's Silicon Labs now that that uh, is in the office building that sits on the footprint of Liberty Lunch, but uh, you know, the, the history of Liberty Lunch is really going all the way back to the very beginning of Austin as a settlement. Uh, you know, you, you, you know, it's, it, it was right basically at where, where there was a low water crossing on the, on the Colorado river. This is before they dammed it up to make uh ladybird Lake. And so there was a, there was a wagon yard, uh, there. Um, and then the wagon yard eventually became a lumber yard and uh and liberty lunch was a kind of a lunch counter that was right at you know in, in one of the buildings uh that, that had you know been part of this larger uh you know lumberyard concern um in, in, and so by the uh you know 70s uh you know early 80s i mean you know liberty lunch was uh, you know it started to be a club it, you know they they at one time served food uh, and, but it was originally when they opened, it was a, you know, there was a gravel floor and it was open to the sky. And if so, if it rained, you know, there wasn't going to be a show. If it was cold, there wasn't going to be a show. Eventually they put a roof on it. Um, it, it still was not climate controlled by the nineties. Um, so, uh, you know, when you had, uh, Nirvana, uh, come through there, Nirvana got booked in there, 
uh, right before Nevermind came out. Uh, but by the time Nevermind came out, it was already starting to explode. So this would have been like maybe September, October in 1991. And so the club was completely sold out and, you know, people were trying to get in. People were literally trying to like, you know, climb in uh, down through the, uh, the holes in the roof, which uh, <laughs> and, and so it was, uh, you know, it, it, but it was a great place to see live music. It was a great place to see bands um you know, and, 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 and they, they treated, uh, they, they treated the folks who came either the folks who came through there, they treated them really well. And even like the, you know, the local bands playing there for the first time, they, they treated, uh, they treated those guys very well. Uh, so, you know, I think there, there are people who probably continued playing Liberty Lunch long after they, they probably could have played someplace else. Um, so yeah, that, that was a good club. And I think the one we're, we're missing uh, that we haven't talked about yet. Uh, we, we've referred to emos a little bit, but then Hole in the Wall uh, was a, was another uh, great place. Um, Hole in the Wall started out in the the 1970s. I think they opened in 1974 and were uh, primarily booking folk acts early on. People like uh, uh, you know very young Lucinda Williams and Nancy Griffith. Uh, by the time I moved here in 1987, uh, I think their their stock and trade was primarily bands. Uh, doing what we called roots rock then that would probably be known as Americana now, but uh, band bands like uh, uh, you know Two Hoots and a Holler and Chaparral and and bands like that. Uh, but along about 1990 91, uh, Debbie Rombach, who was booking the place, uh, kind of started bringing in some of the punk rock bands. Uh, I, I think. Uh, the musician Bill Anderson had a lot to do with it. Bill had been in uh, Poison 13. Uh, then he was in a band called Hand of Glory uh, and, and um, has been in tons and tons of bands since then. He's, you know, uh, uh, Meat Purveyors, Churchwood. Um, but, you know, I think Debbie knew that if, if Bill brought in a band, that that was going to be a, a good band. So then you started having bands like uh, Pork, play there. And uh, I know Pork, I think their drummer actually was a, was a uh, server there for a while. Uh, but that was three, three, uh, three women playing very uh, primitive uh, garage rock. And, and they got in there. And pretty soon, if you just look at the booking calendar of Hole in the Wall from the start of the 90s to the end of the 90s, it just becomes much more uh, directed toward, uh, you know, a lot of these you know, what, what had been like no, younger, newer, sort of more punk influenced, uh, bands. So that was a, that, that was a, a huge place for us. And we're, you know, and, and I guess of all the clubs that we're talking about, that's actually the one that, that is still, uh, standing and, you know, at least something that resembles its, its original form. Uh, emos still exists, but it's primarily, uh, just a showroom that is controlled by, uh, Live Nation. It's not a proper uh, club or bar anymore, uh, and and of course they're not at their original location at, at Six and Red River anymore. Uh, but Hole in the Wall is is still you know right there on Guadalupe across from the university, uh, and they recently signed I think with the city's help uh, a twenty year lease, uh, which is very significant. So hopefully Hole in the Wall uh, kind of hangs around for a while. And I you know I I like to think that the city. I, I have no proof of this, but I like to think that the city uh, was maybe more eager to help hole in the wall out after seeing what happened uh, with, with, with Liberty Lunch in 1999 and having that club, uh, you know, go away. And I, I don't think anybody wanted to see that happen. I don't think the city wanted to see it happen. Um, but it I, just. I, I wonder if it's a coincidence that the mayor then is the mayor now. It's the same person. Kirk Watson did this land deal that may or may not have gone a bit wrong, which meant that a uh, technology company had an empty office for five years sitting on the footprint of Liberty Lunch, like Greg just said. And he is again the mayor of Austin, and I wonder if he might be making amends. I like to think of I like to think of that as Mayor Watson making a, making amends, whether it was or not. And, you know, people were, were really, really, at least in the music scene, were really angry about the fact that Liberty Lunch uh, was was going away. Um, uh, you, you know, but, but the fact of the matter is, is that Liberty Lunch sat on, uh, you know, city property 
I think they were they were paying uh, well below market uh, <laughs> rent for for many years, uh, and, and I think it had been a fait accompli of the fact that they had that uh, situation set up for for a long time. That you know, at some point, the city was going to do something with that with that land. It just it, it just so happened that during the eighties. The economy was so bad that it was real easy for the city just to sit back and say, "Oh, let these, you know, let, let this club uh, exist." And you know, this, the people who work for the city, the city council people, and in some cases, were going to the club too at that point. So, uh, you know, it, it eventually became, uh, you know, economically un, untenable, um, un, unfortunately. And I think the city did make efforts to try to relocate Liberty Lunch. But uh, but again, just as, as the economy uh, went the way it went, um, and uh, you know things got more expensive, it just it just wasn't uh, you know wasn't in the cards. Uh, and as, know, as I understand it, Live Nation also owns the rights to that name as well. <laughs> I think they do. I, I, yeah, I, I think that's. Uh, I, I think you're correct. I'm not 100, percent but I think you're right. Hmm. So you, you know, you have the clubs in here, but then you also have all this stuff that I think is even more fun than the clubs, right? Like you go into thinking like, you know, music, video, um, the zines, the flyers, the press stuff. So can we talk a little bit about um, what else you have besides clubs and kind of why you wanted to make sure, I mean, I could probably figure, but why it's so important to include all of this and not just write, because some think some people would be happy with, let's just get the club scene and that's what really matters. But, but bringing in the rest of this, like why was that important to you to make sure you included some of these other aspects of the scene? Sure. Well, when we interviewed uh, Tim Kerr, who was pivotal not only in the 80s, but very much so in the 90s as well. He, he was saying, you know, this was a unique time and it all revolved around the record store sound exchange, which was the campus record store originally and others popped up, but that was the place we all went to buy and sell our records. And not only was it a record store, but it was a hub for lots of independent record labels. It seemed like at one point, everyone who worked at that store also started and ran their own record label. And in fact, Billboard magazine did an article about this because it was quite a special situation. And then alongside that, there were all these zines being produced, reviewing these records and reviewing the live shows. And in Greg's case, reviewing all you can eat buffets around town. Because why not? Because as a musician, you need to know where you can get as much food as possible. It's the, um, it's the value equation, Richard. You know, it's like <laughs> <laughs> yes. But so, what were some of the labels that the, that the folks in the store were were running? Well, I mean, I think the you know the the first the, the first record that I recall coming out of of that era of Sound Exchange would have been the first Pork single uh, that, that Craig Coon put out. And uh, originally, I think that, you know, that, that that was on his, it was a one-off imprint that was called Subpar Records, kind of a take on Sub Pop. Uh, and then he started Rise Records with uh, the, the uh, late great poster artist, uh, uh, Frank Kozik, who was, uh, who was still in town at the time. And, uh, and then we had Roger Morgan, uh, who worked at Sound Exchange and, uh, he uh, resurrected the label that he'd run in the past called Unclean Records, and that became very active. Uh, I think, uh, I believe it was Christian Caperton had Undone, and uh, Mark Fagan had uh, Bunkhouse Records. So uh, it, it was it was a, so, so really, I mean, I think, you know, yeah, there, there, there were the bands and, who were right at the heart of things, of course. Um, and, and then, you you know, if you're a band, you need a club to play in, but there, but suddenly there was this whole ecosystem if you were a young band uh to to um help get get your stuff out there so uh, it, you know it wouldn't be completely out of the question uh if if you you know you could be a band that's like six month old six months old and suddenly have two people at sound exchange both wanting to put out a project by you 
Um, and and in, uh, in Craig's, Craig Coon's case, who ran Rise Records, he even had a vinyl pressing plant, uh, like this massive machine that he'd purchased and put in a warehouse without air conditioning. It didn't work very well, and the vinyl came out all a bit wobbly, and the sound was a bit off, and you know the center hole wasn't always in the center. But you know it's an attempt at workers' control of the means of production and all that good stuff. So he was trying his best, and I think Craig really lit a spark in town. Uh, he said, you know, there's a there's a phrase certainly in the 90s that Austin was a velvet rut. It was nice and comfortable here and you didn't really have to get out of town to to do quite well. But Craig was irritated by that and really wanted to to poke the beast and wake it up. And uh, I think he did a good job, right? Craig was Craig was an inveterate beast poker. Uh, you know, he, he was, he was very outspoken and, um, and, and I know like sometimes, you know, he would, you know, he, he, he didn't mince words. He didn't suffer fools. And, uh, you know, but, but at the same time, I mean, you'd have situations like where Craig might say something, uh, like, like I know Carl Normal tells a story where Craig, Craig said something, uh, untoward about his band Stratford and about the fact that they were wearing ties or something like that. And, uh, you know, just saying that it was kind of a, a silly artifice or something like that. But then Craig turns around and puts out their, uh, their single. So, um, so, so, I mean, I think everybody uh, ultimately liked and respected Craig because, you know, he was doing stuff. He was always contributing uh, materially to uh, moving, moving things forward. And if he uh, did complain about how things were in Austin, he also, uh, was doing something to to solve it, and and it's, 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 so I think he 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 like those of us who hadn't done this stuff, who hadn't actually had any kind of foot in the uh, music industry and didn't really know about how to book a tour or didn't know about how to put out a record label. We you know well if Craig could do it, I can I can learn from Craig, and and uh, and I think that got a lot of people started. I found it interesting when we were talking to him how. I, I, capitalism is a dirty word in some circles, but uh, he was really, really good in the record store about making money. And, and it, But he had to show that you could make money in this record store because up till then, he described it as this depressing place where no one wanted to work and just nothing was being sold and records were gathering dust in the back. And like, he just really got this energy in this store and got people excited again to sell, you know, vinyl singles or LPs. And it, he really turned it into the, the central hub of the scene. So you have the records, you have these record stores and you also talk about zines and flyers. So can we, because I love zines, uh, can you talk a little bit about, um, also, right. I mean, the nineties was a really great time. I mean, I think any time's a great time for zines, but also the nineties was a really great time, um, for zines and, and sort of zines coming out. So can you talk a little bit about that sort of the press, the zines, the flyers and, and how they were kind of used and what was going on so d- during the, this sort of confuses the issue slightly, but during lockdown, we also put out our own zine about the project while we were writing the book. Uh, so we, we sent that out mail order. And um, I'm looking at this one, volume nine, which is a zine about zines. Uh, and so just flipping through it, this was all about the zines that were put out in the 90s. And I'm just going to list off some as I, as I flip through it. There's Apathy Trend. Um, there was Hope You Die. Uh, which was Susan Shepard's um, uh, zine. And then there was Shelf Life, Geek Weekly, yet another fanzine, U236, um, Apathy Trend again, Boys in Trouble on the Interstate, No Reply, which was Carl Normal's uh, zine, Apathy, Drugs and Driving. And there were so many um, that were put out. Sometimes they were just one sheet. Sometimes they were... um, you know, properly stapled and put together zines. And what was great was there's a fella called Jeremy Ruter who created a zine library. And it was the front room of his house. And he left the door open and you could just wander in and give and take zines as you wanted to. But then they weren't just about music. Greg, for instance, wrote about all-you-can-eat buffet. 
Yeah, there was a, well, I mean, I think they were all, at least at that time, I mean, I think they, you know, even if the subject matter was different, I mean, you know, a lot of them were at least grounded uh, in in the notion of being part of this, you know, DIY uh, scene that where where music was still pretty central to it. But I I think um, it it was, it was a great era for, for zines just by virtue of the fact that, um, uh, you know, you, you had a Kinko's on every corner. Uh, If you had a, a friend who worked at Kinko's and knew how to game the Autotron system, uh, you could pretty easily uh, get a lot of printing done for not a whole lot of money. Um, that, that's another piece that that uh, was sort of an interesting, uh, an interesting uh, appendage of having a lot of folks working in the service industry. Is that uh, you know the the old the old friendly discount. Um, whether that was, uh, you know, getting, getting a, a, you know, a cookie or, uh, you know, an extra large sandwich for the price of a regular. I mean, there was just, there was a lot of that sort of, uh, informal bartering, uh, going on. And, you know, one of the things we talk about in the press chapter is how this sort of, um, uh, nefarious activity, uh, has, has a lot of precedent in Austin. I mean, I think you can go back to O. Henry. And, and Rolling Stone and the fact that, you know, he worked for the general land office, uh, you know, he was a st- state employee while he was doing a lot of this stuff. And then, um, you know, a lot of the early posters uh, and a lot of the early comics that were being developed in the 60s uh, had their uh, roots and uh, the, the fact that some of these people worked for the state and had access to uh, reproductive capacity through, or, you know, printing through their job. Uh, so, so yeah, it, it was uh, the, the fact that that, that became a little bit more, uh, accessible, uh, you know, I think was a big part of it. And then you had the one we haven't mentioned yet, Richard was peekaboo, uh, which is, a, which is a good example of a, of a zine that I think, you know, the, those guys were taking full exam, full advantage of, uh, you know, desktop publishing. I mean, they, they, they were not trying to do something that was just cut and paste and, uh, you know, a typewriter and a Sharpie type of thing. I mean, it was actually, you know, properly laid out. And then, um, and then that ultimately gave way to peekaboo. Uh, the record label, uh, is the, is the nineties went on and they put out a lot of, you know, great records. I think, uh, silver scooter, uh, the other Palm Springs, I think, was probably uh, one of one of the biggest. But then they also put out one of the very first Spoon records, uh, the Kiss Offs, One Four Fives, and a whole lot of other a whole lot of other great bands. But um, but that that that's the thing. I mean, it, you know, a lot of the players in all of these things were the same people. Uh, you know, in the case of Peekaboo, Travis Higdon, you know, edited Peekaboo magazine, uh, ran Peekaboo Records. And he played for the one, four fives and the kiss offs. So that, you know, it was never just, Oh, well, I'm going to be a writer or I'm going to be uh, a poster artist. Uh, it was always, uh, you know, a mix of things. I think that people, people tended to work on. Well, and I think one thing that often, if you are of a certain age, you know, this, and then um, right now I have to explain this is that the only way to find out about a lot of things was through print, right? You get a flyer, you find out like, where's the house party, what bands are coming, right? You couldn't just look on your like computer phone um, and find that information. So it really like, and I, you know, you see that you, in your book, people sort of talk about that importance, right? Like, how do we find out where to go? Um, Not only to get like all you can eat buffet, but you know, where... (laughs) everything is happening um and it was central like the record store or just handing out those flyers kind of thing um that we don't really think about how important it was to keep something together um in 2023 when you can easily find it on the web right and and also speaking of the the whole ecosystem you asked early about um you know film and video and and we didn't really talk about that but just you know as well as zine makers posters and you know record labels there was a whole film school who were into the music that was being made 
So there, there were filmmakers who in their day job were making maybe commercials or promos or whatever for money, and then they'd have maybe a few hundred feet of film left over, and they might borrow that, and then use it to make a music video, which in some cases ended up on MTV, in the case of 16 Deluxe, and in other cases ended up on, um, you know, underground TV or access television around the country. And Austin, as I understand it, has the oldest continuously running access TV station in the country. And so there were some great shows, um, primarily uh, Dave Pruitt's Capsize, which went live at midnight on Saturday night with a live band and then would play music videos from around town. And so there was not only people creating the music videos, but again, in the days before YouTube, etc., there was a place to show them and see them, which was great. You know, you have to have some way to show these, otherwise what's the point in making them? Um, so so that was all part of it as well. And, and, and these filmmakers who, there was one called The Administration, which was a collective that included Kirthy Fix and Walter Rowell and John Spath and, and, and a few other uh, folks, um, were amazing. They did really, really creative work. For not for not a lot of money, <laughs> that's the that's you know I think that was that you know the fact that they could manage to do some of this work that stands out. I mean, some of the videos that uh, that, that the administration did, um, uh, the the one they did for Sincola's song "Bitch" is a good example. Uh, the the one they did for Starfish's song "Run Around" I think is uh, you know a, a fantastic example, just because it's it really is kind of like a slice of a life as to what Austin was like at that time. I mean, it, 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 um, you know, shows, shows people swimming in the Creek and standing in front of like a, a, you know, a porn cinema on (laughs) South Congress, which is now a very, uh, trendy, safe place to, to go shopping. Uh, and then, and then just play, you know, a band just jamming out in a, in a practice room with all these, uh, Christmas lights and, uh, you know, kiss tapestry and it just yeah it just it, it captured a vibe i think in a you know in a really uh special way and so yeah they just and and a lot of these uh, filmmakers have gone on to uh you know bigger and and better things over time so it was a good you know good good training ground for them but then for the you know for the bands uh it was it was critical that that that, that was definitely a critical piece of the infrastructure in terms of putting things together uh and you know kind of establishing yourself so you have this, and so a couple of things, like you go through this decade, right? Um, and you, you do, you get to the end. <laughs> let me be, let's talk, let's start with this. Um, because you kind of talk about the end of the decade and you have this um, chapter, which you sort of subtitle, it doesn't go on forever. Um, and so can you talk a little bit about like, what how you sort of close this out and close out this decade and kind of close out this scene as well right i i think we were lucky in the sense that you know it you know we we had to book in this some way uh and and i think you know chrono you know chronologically uh makes a lot of sense um but you know at the same time i'm kind of like well you know, is, is, is 99 really like a, a benchmark time when things, uh, you know, fall apart? Um, it, it just so happened there were a lot of things that were kind of just that, that were changing in, in 99. So it was it was convenient for us as, as you know, amateur armchair historians to, uh, to to use that. I mean, you know, that um, in, in 99, you had uh, Liberty Lunch closed down, which was, uh, you know, a seismic impact, not just on this this punk underground DIY scene that we're talking about, but it was, you know, felt across the entire music uh, infrastructure in Austin. At the same time, you had uh, Electric Lounge close, and they'd been in business for uh, about six years at that point. It had become very integral to, to the scene. Um, and then Bates Motel uh, which was a smaller uh, club that, that really booked a lot of punk rock music on Sixth uh, Street, um, also closed, uh, and and so uh, you know th- those are those are three places that um, a band that would have existed in this uh, 
and the scene would have had uh, to play that suddenly were um, by the, you know, they, they existed in January of 99 and then by the end of 99, they didn't exist anymore. Um, so it, it, it was kind of like there was a, you know, there was a page uh, turning in that regard. And I think the other thing that, that we kind of see as we go from the, the early part of the 90s till the end of the 90s is just the scene just got so much bigger. Uh, at, at one time uh, in the early 90s, I think you would you would pretty much know or know, uh, you know, you, you pretty much would have known all of the bands or at least, you know, like one person in all the bands that were playing that type of music uh, in, in Austin. Um, and uh, so it was a it was a relatively small pond. Uh, but but as you get further along in the 90s and more people are moving here, uh, th- there are more people now playing music. And uh, it's not just more people, it's more people exploring different types of music. Uh, I think that the, the, the scene itself in terms of, uh, you know, what people were playing becomes a lot less focused on, uh, you know, classic guitar oriented, you know, punk rock type music. Uh, as you move uh, move through the 90s, uh, I think electronic uh, type type music starts uh, asserting itself. Um, yeah, I think some some people may you know may have started moving more toward what we would come to be known as uh, Americana. Uh, you know, bands weren't necessarily trying to be uh, super loud as much. I mean, Richard, I know we like we've talked about like the band Stars of the Lid uh, that were very very ambient, very like the the antithesis of what things were uh, it, it, in the cavity. And yet at the same time, uh, you know, Brian McBride, uh, you know, rest in peace, one of the principals and stars of the lid, you know, he, he, had, he, he, he had done the grunge show at, uh, at the student radio station earlier, and he just evolved into doing something, uh, you know, totally different over time. So it was, uh, so, so as the scene evolved and got more, uh, got, got more into different, uh, different avenues, it couldn't help but become a little more fragmented because it, there was just so many different things going on in so many different directions. And so, you know, that, that was, uh, you know, in some ways, uh, a good thing in some ways, uh, a, a little bit sad just because it wasn't that this small, uh, group, but so, so we have a bookend and at the same time, I mean, I think we end the book with, with, you know, Tim Kerr talking about how, you know, look, I mean, this was going on before we were here. It'll be going on after we, after we leave. Uh, and, and so people ask us a lot about, you know, uh, you know, how, you know, how do we feel about Austin now? Um, and, you know, of course there are things that we, that we mourn that, uh, we, we wish were different. Uh, I think, you know, a lot of it for me boils down to just affordability and, uh, and, and value. I mean, it's just that this town isn't, you know, it's not the same proposition it was when we moved here. Uh, but, but in terms of, cultural offerings in terms of musical offerings uh that you know you should never be at a loss for things to do here because there's still uh, a lot of, of great things being done i mean there's still a lot of great music being made the musicality i think has uh, overall gotten a lot better the, the presentation of bands i think is uh you know has, has evolved in a lot of ways the way bands are, are uh, combining and contrasting influences is, is a within that as well, within those bands, uh, sorry, outside of those bands as well, there's still the ecosystem. There's still house parties and there's there's some amazing record stores here. And then I know this is sort of on the edge of things, but there's some great coffee shops and that's all part of the scene as well, right? Um, just to hang out and chat and hopefully not stare at your laptop. And there's also, you know, secondhand clothing stores and thrift shops, and that all cr- creates a certain sense of belonging in in cities, and that doesn't exist in a lot of towns. You know, I'm I'm a visitor to Austin now. I live back in England in Cambridge, and we don't have as lovely as it is. We don't have that great sort of gnarly ecosystem that that exists here. It's it's wonderful. 
So in this, another thing I just have to ask you about two more things that you do. Well, sort of, I mean, we can put it all together that you do with this book is so you end it, but then you also give us um, a little bit on the people who wrote it. Right. And some of the people who have passed away. So um, give us an insight into the, or into the people who you talk to, but then you also have a hundred essential underground releases of the 1990s in chronological order. So how hard was it? Or was, were you like, you know, I just have to like. <laughs> it, I mean, it, it, it was, it, it was a little hard because there was, there was so much that came out back then. And I, and I know that probably if I were, if, you know, on, on, in some respects, I mean, this was a list I'd been putting together since the the nineties. I mean, so there were some things I knew that, uh, that I wanted to include, um, but at the same time, there were things that I slept on back in the nineties and didn't really discover uh, until, you know, I started working on this list. I mean, the, uh, the, the Cyrus Rigo album, uh, the trans syndicate, um, put out toward the, uh, end of its, uh, its course, uh, is a, is a fantastic record that for one reason or another, I didn't, uh, didn't get a chance to, uh, check out back then. So, uh, you know, at, at the end of the day, I mean, I think that this book is, is, uh, it's obviously a product of what our perception was from the places that the, the places that we stood, uh, you know, witnessing the scene and, and, you know, and then the places of, of the people uh, who, who we interviewed. But it, but I think it's important to note that, like, we, we didn't talk to everybody and uh, we didn't cover everything. And, and um, I think, you know, you, you want to get into a good bar conversation over over pints, I mean, I think, you know, there'd be a lot of people who beg to differ with what we, uh, you know, what we emphasize or what we didn't emphasize as much as they would have uh, otherwise liked. And so I, I think there's still, there's still, you know, things that are coming out of the woodwork uh, now that the book's out um, that, that will continue to <laughs> evolve our assessment. Richard's holding up a cassette tape right now. Well, what is that? It's funny, it's exactly what Greg's saying. So I, I just heard from Star in Wagner. He said, hey, can we submit stories, you know, just to keep the project going? But then I also uh, saw Steve Bishop recently, who was the manager of KVRX. And he handed me this cassette and said, hey, could you digitize it? It's one of Spoon's earliest recordings. It's the rough mixes of Arthur. And um, so I'm going to digitize this and see what's on it but so to greg's point all things are still coming out of the back of people's closets yeah i just i actually just got a note from the band uh the friendly truckers who were one of the early early adapters so to speak they were on the they, they were doing a lot of stuff back in the uh early 90s and played with stratford a lot and yeah they they you know the, the, those guys are clearing out their closets um so uh, you know we're we're still uh we're, we're, we're still learning, I think, as we go along. And I hope, you know, I hope we'll kind of continue uh, this project in one form or another. Richard, I know, you know, m maybe you'd like to talk a little bit about the uh, the documentary that were that, that sort of gave birth to this whole project and where that's sure. going. These days. I mean, just to bring the whole conversation full circle, uh, the the documentary film has now turned into a series because I don't know when to stop. Uh, and we've got various episode titles. I've pretty much done The Cavity, uh, finished Blue Flamingo, which includes sort of diving into Sound Exchange and Sweatbox Studios. I'm working on uh, a film about emos as it was when, when we were there and also about, the King, about King Coffee's record label, Trance Syndicate, because um, I think that encapsulates a lot of craziness and uh, an interesting look at, at the 90s through a slightly different lens. But so th those are going on right now and uh, chatting with, you know, L.A. people about uh, what to do with it. And uh, we'll, we'll see what happens. L.A. people, that sounds uh, both interesting and, and a little cryptic. <laughs> <laughs> 
a little ominous, right? Yeah. So, I mean, I think you answered my, like, final, usually my final question, right? That idea of, like, what, um, what's next? Uh, what's going on? So I don't know if there's any last things that either are going on with the book or that you're, you know, caught, like, put, like, continuing to compile and put together. But, yeah, any last, um, we've got the cryptic LA, um, yeah, hauntings. Uh, but anything else going on? Yeah. Well, I, <laughs> well, we're gonna. We're. I'm. I'm. I was really excited that we're gonna be part of the Texas Book Festival uh, this year. Uh, so we're gonna be doing a, a panel on uh, November twelfth uh, that, that we're really uh, looking forward to. Um, but but I think you know, you know. Long story short, I think I think we're we're sort of uh, right back at the point where we, you know. Uh, you know, talking about what Tim Kerr uh, had said that like, it, it never ends. Um, and I think that's, you know, it's, you know, the, the book is out and that, that you know, was, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm very happy it's out. I'm, I'm proud of it. I'm really happy that, you know, the, the uh, response that we've gotten from uh, most of the people we've talked to has been very, very positive. I think it, it you know, for the people who participated in it, uh, you know, maybe it stands as just some sort of validation of this era that I think, you know, we all hold very close to our hearts, but that it actually, you know, has some, you know, some permanence, uh, you know, going, uh, going forward. Um, and that, and that it actually, you know, it really, it, it did matter. And, and now we have a book that we can all like refer back to and tell people that we, uh, that, that we were there. Um, but, but yeah, I, I, I'm still fascinated, uh, both with, uh, you know, the, a lot of the work that the folks did back then who were around, but, but also, um, you know, what the folks who were around back then have continued to do and, um, and, and how that period has influenced what they've done since. Um, uh, there, there are, uh, you know, I'm thinking of, you know, there, there are a couple of restaurants here that I can think of just off the top of my head with that are, that are run by people, uh, who had a foot in the scene back then? Uh, you know, Franklin Barbecue. Aaron Franklin played in bands back in the uh, late '90s at Emos. Uh, you know, Noah Polk, who runs a pizza place here called Eastside Pies, he worked at Emos uh, back in the '90s. Um, Joel Freed, who's a friend of mine and a bandmate of mine, um, you know, he worked at Electric Lounge uh, and Stubbs back in the '90s. Now he runs a restaurant here called uh, El Dorado Cafe. So. I think, you know, a lot of the way people uh, do what is now kind of like their professional work has, was influenced by their time, uh, you know, existing in this ecosystem that we had going back in, back in the uh, 90s that was informed by uh, a lot of the things, you know, the, the groundwork that the bands in the 80s, like the big boys laid. And, and when I talk about the, the groundwork, it's it's not just the music and the the way of doing things. It's also uh, kind of the, the underlying ethic behind it. I think um, uh, is is you know very important. And I think you know a lot of people took that to heart. And now you kind of see this uh, having having grown and still hopefully influencing uh, our environs in a positive way. Well, Greg and Richard, thank you so much for talking with me for New Books Network. Again, um, Greg Beats and Richard Weimark, who put together a curious mix of people, the underground scene of 90s Austin. Thank you so much. Thank you, Rebecca. Thank you.